Leo Russell is a therapist, but also the founder of the Adapt Washington and Entheo Society of Washington programs. Uh, both of these programs are geared towards um, the decriminalization of entheogens, psilocybin, and other plant medicines, as well as bringing awareness to the communities about what these plant medicines can do and how they can help us. Uh, today on the show, we're going to talk with Leo about the journey that she's had with the uh, Decriminalization Act that has been recently passed, as well as her personal views and thoughts about psychedelics and how they can help humanity. Uh, psychedelics have been part of my journey for quite a bit of time now, and I've found a lot of success with utilizing them in my personal healing, and I'm really excited to have this conversation. I hope you get something out of it. We'll see you on the other side. All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, today, uh, sitting across from me is a newer person that I've just met. I was introduced to, uh, to Leo by Suzanne Silvermoon, who I had on the podcast a couple uh, weeks ago. Um, so Leo's joining me today. Um, currently started the ADAPT program for Washington, the Anthio, Entheo Society for Washington, and have, has been a therapist in many different ways, uh, family counseling, things like that, for a number of years. Um, I was really excited to talk to you as soon as Suzanne mentioned your name and told me what you do. Um, I've been a big personal advocate for plant medicines um, since I started responsibly using them within the past 10 years. Uh, definitely experimented with you know all kinds of stuff as a teenager and, and went into it with no understanding and no um, appreciation for the journey, just wanting to watch the wall melt and you know feel cool things. Uh, but as I stepped into it as an adult and utilizing it, this as a healing journey and a healing modality, it's completely changed everything for me. And plant medicines, especially psilocybin, microdosing has, in my, for my personal journey, changed my life in a very beautiful way. Um, has made me very, very aware of the emotions that I have and why I have them. Instead of just sometimes we get trapped in our emotions and we have no idea how we got there. Um, psilocybin has, for me, given me kind of a roadmap to figure out where that trigger came from, how I can sit with that and, and repair that trigger and show it love instead of just ignoring it. Um, so the, the work that you're doing and the understandings that you are now bringing to the public with psilocybin is something that we should have been doing for a long time. Uh, you know, I think the world probably got scared when Timothy Leary and, and Ram Dass back in the 60s were like, everybody should be on acid. It's like, oh, shit, pump the brakes, buddy. Um, and even people like Russell Brand, right, when, when he finally found his spirituality and, and got out of drugs and alcohol, you know, he went to the complete extreme with that, too, and was like, everybody needs to wake up, you know, so you have this very big, exciting moment, but like almost it needs to be toned down a little bit into more professional presentation so the masses can get it instead of just the individuals. And that's why I love what you're doing with ADAPT and with the Entheo Society, because they seem like they're, they're doing the same thing, but in different ways. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, well, first off, thanks for being here. Appreciate you. Um, can you tell me about the, uh, the, the difference between the two? Sure. Um, so Entheo Society of Washington, but we um, are interested in making it international. So Entheo Society um, is basically a 501c3 nonprofit that's focused on plant medicine education. So for us right now, that education is Ibogaine, um, which is being used for uh, drug and alcohol treatment, primarily in Canada and in Mexico. You can't currently do it legally in the U.S., um, but for folks who are looking for alternative treatment modalities for hardcore drug addiction, that is certainly um, a very promising option. There are other plant medicines like ayahuasca um, as well that we focus on within Entheo Society. And what we do there is uplift the voice of um, people in our community. So you might not know, but there's like a Puyallup tribal member who's quite openly um, utilizing plant medicine with his brothers and sisters in the native community. And there's just a lot of uh, entitlement. And sometimes we see a lot of um, just white men that are kind of seen as the face of the psychedelic movement. Mm -hmm. So it's just really an opportunity to explore what does it look like to be doing plant medicine in our communities in responsible ways, 
um, and also just uplifting people within the community who might not be heard otherwise. Mm. Uh, we did a, uh, a recent uh, episode on black people and psychedelics um, and hoping to have a rabbi speak soon. And then we have a First Nation man, uh, Ruben, who is uh, currently utilizing plant medicine up in British Columbia um, and plans to open up a clinic to just work directly with his people and not to ask for um, permission from the government, but to mm. utilize um, his sovereignty as being part of a First Nation peoples up there. Adapt is more for uh, for those of us who really need the legalization piece of it. Okay. Um, I, I began decriminalized nature Seattle, and um, and I wasn't there when we crossed the finish line, but really felt like I built you know the the main portions of that movement that kind of got it going. And in that work, I um, I really saw that decriminalization doesn't carry a lot of weight to it. So ultimately, the federal government can still come in and punish you for mm. doing a plant-based medicine. And it's just interesting if we can uh, move, move and push farther in terms of what we are allowed to do. And this is something that is growing naturally here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and so ADAPT had a fundraiser at Daybreak Star, uh, the Native American Cultural Center in Seattle in mm. December. Um, and that was a sold out fundraiser. And we're having another one this week that is hopefully going to be sold out as well in Olympia. Uh, and we had a fundraiser uh, last week in Spokane. Mm. So um, what's really beautiful about ADAPT is that it really draws lots of different people. It draws therapists that really want psilocybin to be available for clinical use. Um, and they want to see people move faster in their trauma work so mm. that something that someone could deal with uh, by six months of therapy, they might be able to deal with in you know two months or a month by doing uh, work with psilocybin. Not always, not in every case. Um, and I think that goes without saying. There are exceptions to every rule. Right. And, um, and ADAPT is for an oversight process. So you're not seeing the decriminalization aspect which some people struggle with that because they don't want government controlling their plant medicine experience or who can be a plant medicine provider. Right. At the same time, I know people that are out there on the underground doing work with people who may not be that mentally or spiritually stable themselves, and they're not having any oversight. So they're mucking around with people's psyches and vulnerable folks that are looking for answers and looking for uh, meaning. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of hurt folk out there right now. We right. have incredible rates of depression. Um, my friend Tony Back, who's a doctor, he is one of the first people to ever be um, approved for doing a clinical trial with psilocybin that's going forward right now that Forbes magazine featured, mm. and that's at the University of Washington. That's for frontline COVID workers, um, and I think he was able to get that approved by the DEA specifically because you're seeing such high rates of depression, especially mm. in the Pacific Northwest. Right. Yeah, coupled with our weather and everything that's yep. going on up here. Yep, lots of depression, Most lots definitely. of anxiety. Yeah. I, uh, I really appreciate the fact that you're involving indigenous cultures with, with this journey. That's uh, something I feel has been missed a lot as we start to make this more wide known is the showing the respect of where it actually came from and not colonizing this like we have the tendency to do with all the, the shiny new toys that we find. And uh, I think it's very important to keep cultural appropriation and decolonization in front of mind when we start to work through this stuff. Uh, how did you get involved with the indigenous um, cultures up here in the the different communities? Well, my dad is a very small part Penobscot and, um, you know, I don't necessarily identify as native in any way, but I, uh, I think I just always was intrigued by native culture or drawn to it. Um, I became a member of the ayahuasca church, even though I'm Jewish and that's a legal, uh, church in, in Washington state that allows an organ as well, that allows you to use ayahuasca within, um, a church based environment. Mm -hmm. Um, and within that, uh, community, I saw a lot of people come up from Brazil and who were indigenous users of the medicine and would really kind of instruct people on, um, and their cultural ways of using that medicine. But my work with the native American community locally here in the Pacific Northwest began, um, right when I became a therapist, um, during my clinical internship, I, um, I worked for 
the um, it was a cultural based counseling program, mm-hmm. and it was one of the first of its kind. My mentor helped write it. He's a Chippewa elder, and it's basically utilizing music and utilizing language and utilizing things like drum making and berry picking and things like that. Traditional um, coastal, you know, uh, Coast Salish values and customs to be utilized in a cultural based context that that count as therapy so not seeing therapy just as talk therapy which is often in western uh view of what therapy is it's this concept of you know kind of like the freudian uh stoic therapist sitting in a chair and that may not work for a native indigenous kid who's coming from uh, a lot of historic trauma mm-hmm. and um and now we know more about epigenetics and epigenetic trauma and also poverty when we look at poverty in this country and the impact of poverty and what has been done in terms of the boarding schools and generation after generation of kids who've who may have escaped from that lineage of boarding schools, but are still carrying the remnants of that. So, um, so that brought me to daybreak star, which is where I began my internship. Um, and Pete Blair, who's my mentor, his work has gone on to be used by the Snoqualmie tribe, Macaw tribe. Um, and he's really into how can I go and do like fishing with a young man that maybe is like struggling to feel heard, maybe being raised by a single mother, Mm -hmm. um, kind of grasping for male role modeling and not knowing who he is as a young man in in his society. And the, and the stereotypes out there for native people are very dysfunctional. You know, it's very much like, uh, you can be a, what murdered indigenous woman, you can be, uh, like raped or, uh, taken advantage of by men or a drunk on the street, you know, just lots of negative imagery. And there aren't a lot of positive role modeling that we see like upheld in our culture. So I think um, by working within that community therapeutically, um, I gained a lot in terms of humility, hopefully, but also just like general awareness about like how Native Americans have been done so wrong. Right. A lot of times we don't even realize how bad it is. We have our own quote unquote understanding of it. You maybe we've, we've what we've read in books, or maybe we've had actually a conversation with an indigenous person. But the depth of that systemic like oppression and just the stealing and and just it's it's so deep that it's I you know I, I I do talk to a lot of people that have that get defensive when when you start to talk about that kind of like when Black Lives Matters um, you know that that term first started becoming uh, you know a, a battle cry you know a lot of people were like no 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 all lives, you know, all these things, but you don't really realize until you dive in that the depth of the pain and suffering that these entire cultures of people have suffered. Um, and, and again, like we we're right on the precipice of doing it again, if we're not careful, right. Taking this plant medicine that, that these cultures have been using for centuries that probably have been hiding this, this medicine for centuries so that the white man doesn't get it. And now we found it. Now we understand the usages of it theoretically. And now we're just going to just maybe put it out there for all the world to have. You know, I appreciate that's, you know, the things like that, what you're doing, you're, you're keeping it responsible. We got to keep this responsible. I have people. So myself, I'm a, I'm a Reiki practitioner and a, and a sound healer. And I've been doing this for a couple of years now. And I started it right before COVID and saw a big anxious depression state happen during COVID. And I can't tell you how many of these people have talked to me and said, Hey, Adam, I want plant medicines. I luckily I've been raised into a point with plant medicines to know that I'm not responsible enough at this point to administer that and to, to keep people safe on their journeys. I do for myself and I know how to do that, but I'm not going to put that on somebody else until I'm properly trained. And that's the thing that I love now too, is that now that this is becoming more popularized and more legalized or decriminalized, um, now there's more training programs on how to utilize these and practices that I don't have to have a litany of letters after my name to, to go take these trainings. I can go down to Oregon to Paul Austin and take his training that he's worked with indigenous cultures and has an understanding of everything from DMT to Ibogaine ayahuasca and have a training like that, you know, a very safe accredited kind of thing, you know, um, or go work with some indigenous cultures. But there's the opportunities now to, to have that platform instead of just, oh, I read a book and watched a documentary and I think I got this. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah. Seems like a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, people in, in the field that I'm in are dipping a toe into this this kind of new medicine. And uh, well, it's interesting because I, I see as a culture that we grapple with, you know, there's been a lot of money made on cannabis. Yes, right. Totally. And a lot of money made like on the backs of black men that have been criminalized for um, for hard drugs. 
and um, and have been really barred from going into uh, making money off of cannabis. So mm-hmm. you've just seen this, uh, not necessarily cultural appropriation, but um, just a real racist, an extension of this racist drug war where uh, where largely like men in power have been able to kind of corner the market on cannabis. And, and you see the same thing for psychedelics, like the gearing up for, for colonizing the great frontier again. And how it's done so savagely is again, like reminding us of how the West was won. And, you know, just like the ways that people grab these parcels of land and claim it as theirs and exclude others. And, you know, it has that tone to it again, which is the antithesis of what we learn in the plant medicine experience, right? right? In the plant medicine experience, we're learning like, look at our wounds. You talked about that at the beginning of, of our talk, um, to sit with our wounds, that, that our wounds may not go away, but we can get to know them and become friends with them. Like there's a gentleness and there's can be a real femininity to the plant medicine. So it's very interesting that we uh, are kind of allowing as a culture for things within the psychedelic community to kind of be swayed by that, um, the urgency to, uh, appropriate or to make it, uh, commoditized, um, in a way similar to the way that cannabis has been. But I think there's kind of like a cultural lurch as we do that because you can't do it. It's like, you want to take the cannabis model and you want to apply it to this and say, you can just imagine this like group of guys that like run the world that are like the one percenters (laughs) and they're sitting around a table and they're like, Oh, can't we just do the same thing? And we'll send salmon and just do the same thing and cut out those guys, those black dudes that wanted to get in because they don't have a million dollars to start their cannabis dispensary. Like, can't we just do the same model and just dominate again and rake in the dough? And, and someone's like, yeah, the only problem is, is that this isn't cannabis. This medicine is going to change people fundamentally. It will Mm -hmm. Literally shake them up and shift their consciousness. So in my opinion, when people are born into this world, this capitalistic like nightmare or whatever, mm-hmm. they the first thing you want to impress upon them is that they're like a number and they're a name and they're in a box or whatever. But you also want to strip them of their self-esteem. The first thing you want to do is tell them that they need to buy something, they need to take something, they're not enough, they're not whole and complete on their own. And so capitalism really does that you. It really does a number on you, right? right? You're, you're never good enough. You're never thin enough. You're never young enough. You're never competent enough. But if you bought those Nike sneakers, right? (laughs) If you bought that crap from China, right? Then you'd be happy, Uh right? Or if you could score Sally as opposed to your dumb wife, you know, or whoever, right? However you teach people to always want something different, better, more. So I think what plant medicine does is says, hey there, Max, you don't need anything. You're fine just by yourself. And and in our society, our government does not want that. Yeah. Does not want anyone being satisfied with what they are. And again, it's very similar to the indigenous peoples of the Americas who said, why are you guys fighting over this grass? It's here for everyone. Like, why are you tripping out, man? Right. Right. But we were there to say, no, no, no. Who owns the grass matters. And they're like, God owns the grass. What are you talking about? <laughs> you fool. Uh-huh. That's, you know, I, I'm so happy you brought that up because when I was, uh, you know, the week or so I was preparing for this interview, I actually had that same visual of sitting on my couch and I'm like, what are those five old ass white dudes that run this world sitting there thinking that they're, they're going to just rake in this tax money and not understand that plant medicines and psychedelics and all these entheogens that are being now put into the world in a legal decriminalized way are going to change the actual physical way that these people think and act and understand the world. And so, you know, like I picture like this Scrooge McDuck kind of scenario, these fat cats, you know, backstroking through their, their, their gold and all this shit while the rest of the world is finally awakening to the bullshit that, that we've been given. And this, this lie of war and deceit and greed is all normal. And these people that want to take care of the planet and want to live in a love and embracing world are the ones that are weird, you know? It's like, I don't understand. I do understand, but well, I just... Well, and the thing is, is that if you look at the criminalization of the hippie, right? Mm, yeah. If you look at the Woodstock movement before Nixon came down hard and started planting his goons in these groups, agent provocateurs in these mm. groups, right? In the anti-war movement, in the civil rights movement, right? Like Martin Luther King Jr.'s best friend was an informant for the FBI. Mm. The Martin Luther Jin- King Jr. family was able to sue the FBI for what they did to him, basically oh, really? assassinated him. You know, so 
our government didn't want these people rising up and challenging the system, but they also were observing like, Hey, wait a second. All, all the colors are mixing together. They're all getting along. They're happy. They're not divided. Like the women and the men are respecting one another. Women's rights are being allowed to occur. Like we got to stop all this. Right. <laughs> and so it's interesting to cre- criminalize drugs. Right. And to teach people that drugs are what's bad. And the black man has like this, you know, image of being scary and let's plant, you know, crack cocaine in black communities. And, you know, it just became a very insidious drug war against these people. I think to criminalize the hippie, right. Mm -hmm. And they talked about that later, that that was a deliberate action is to basically scoff at and make fun of the man with the long hair, right. To make fun of the man that is not stuffing his emotions. Like we've taught men to do and, um, men are not allowed to really wear much clothes in these in our society that really um, reflect any kind of creativity. I told my husband recently, I went into the men's section and I was like, it was horrible, honey. Like it was horrible. All the clothes were like drab and boring and the same color and there was no creativity and no sequins and no flowers. And I was like, I just wanted to kill myself after being in this area for like half an hour. It was terrible. And I said, and the men looked depressed. I mean, it was horrible. Um, and, and the thing is, I think if you look at the seventies, we allowed men to wear bell bottoms pants. Mm-hmm. We allowed men to wear, um, like, uh, like long, you know, uh, sashes and scars and has, yeah, and, and have some stuff. panache and yeah. like it's bizarre that we said no. We need to squeeze men into suits and suffocating ties and make them miserable and like mm. hate their wives and become alcoholics. You know, <laughs> and and so I think in criminalizing the hippie, we're then criminalizing anyone that cares about the earth, mm. that cares about um, each other, that cares about kindness. Um, and that cares about non-materialism, that cares about the environment and women's rights and men's rights and, and that they're not, they don't have to be exclusive. And so I think when we pity that person, like they're the fool, right? Cause they can't get a nine to five job cause they don't have the druthers to sit there and be miserable like mm-hmm. the rest of us at their desk job. Like it's really an eye opening experience to think about what plant medicine can do, because I think it can wake people up to realize like, Hey, I'm, I'm really checking out. I'm, I've got an addiction to just fill in the blank, sex, work, uh, uh, gambling, you know, TV, Netflix, eating, like, and what am I stuffing? Like what is really going on inside myself? What am I afraid to talk about? Right. Are you familiar with Terrence McKenna mm-hmm. and his, right. So Terrence wrote a book of a long time ago, uh, food of the gods. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I was really in depthly introduced to the stoned ape kind of theory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and he goes into talking about how, when we were, you know, hundred per 150 person villages and we were matriarch societies, not patriarch societies. Uh, and we, we did, um, base our, our medicines around plant medicine, that there was this, this matriarch, right? Everybody was governed equally, right? There was equal rights for everybody. There was, everybody helped raise the kids in the community, right? Everybody had like love and, and respect for each other. And then once the fruit started falling from the tree and started to, um, to ferment, and that became the new medicine when somebody picked that up and was like, well, that's fun, you know? And then we switched from plant medicines, which is very feminine, divine-based, to masculine-based uh, fermented medicines. That's when the patriarchy started to happen, and we started to get aggressive, and now there were kings, and there were, you know, ol- oligarchies and all this stuff. And, and it's just such an interesting comparison when you look at that and see how the chemical makeup of this, sub- this substance is like killing us basically. Whereas this other substance is enlightening us to the beauties and the wonders of the world. But the one that's fermented adds power and you get a couple of people drunk on power, literally drunk on power. And then that just seems to take over the whole world, you know? So it's interesting to see this shift again, like you were talking about with, you know, the awakening of the planet and the awakening of this decriminalization and just see what's going to happen the next few years with this. Like, I'm really interested. Well, if you tie it in with hatred to women, like, mm. if you tie in, like, hatred or fear of plant medicine and that Kali energy of are we scared of women's anger, but, like, the beauty of women's anger and the righteousness of women's anger and what you just discussed was that the, the feminine plant medicine was over here and that's what people were utilizing – uh, I was thinking, I was kind of getting chills, but I was thinking about the Oracle at Delphi. Okay. So the Oracle at Delphi, like kings came to her, emperors came to her. It's um, Plato and Sophocles also went away and they um, took like plant medicine 
uh, with these like witchy women, with these priestess women. Mm. So they're kind of like behind the scenes and we don't see them. But for my honeymoon, I went to the Oracle at Delphi and it was just bizarre, like not to realize like it was first the navel of the world. So it's one of these places in the world where it's considered the navel and you just feel the energy as you go down, down, down into this navel. But also here's where, uh, kings and emperors and, uh, people that led armies and generals and all of this from all over the region of Europe came to hear generation after generation, the voice of the Oracle, who was always a woman, right? Mm. And it didn't matter what class she was from. She could be a woman who was a farmer's daughter, or she could be a princess. It didn't matter. But she was that divine connection with the other side. Um, And just, I think that we're so scared when you think about like the, all the witches that were burned in Europe, like we're so scared of women and their, um, their magic. Right. Um, And I, I think plant medicine is kind of part of that. Like maybe the second revolution of the psychedelic Renaissance will be led by women Mm. and not in a way that excludes men, but I mean, I would say that I have more men in my organization than women. And I sometimes struggle with that about like, how can I have more equality and include more women? But I think I've kind of just set that down for the moment and been like, you know, I think more men have been drawn to this because it's kind of like on their radar. When you think about um, IT guys or more men do drugs than women, like, I think I've kind of relaxed some of my own um, just self-persecution around like not having perfect gender uh, equity in my own organization. Right. Do you think um, Do you think men might be drawn towards plant medicines, not more, but maybe you're seeing that more in, in your groups because mm-hmm. there's this deep subconscious desire to actually find balance because we've been so shadow masculine for the longest time and 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 that's the expectation to be the provider to be the angry to be the aggressor you know and i'm in a bunch of men's groups and like i can't tell you how many times i personally cried about that but hearing other men cry about that whole ideology that's put on us right that maybe that that plant medicine idea is finally that breath of fresh air that men are like I want that. I don't want to be a strong man. I don't want to be that masculine toxic. I want to find balance. I want to be a divine feminine. I want to understand what the full value of love is, you know, and just really step into that. Well, and I also think that on the flip side, there's women that want to be kind of the autistic, weird, eccentric, mad scientist that we sometimes allow men to be. So I think that there's a lot of gender stuff that people want on both sides. But I was tearing up when you were talking because um, my dad was a got his PhD in men's ministries, right? Mm. So I grew up from a very young age with like Robert Bly and all these different like um, t- discussions around how toxic this culture is as far as what it allows men to be Mm. or allows men to talk about are their relationships with their own fathers and um, just the the expectations on them that you just mentioned and the thing is I think I'm guilty of that you know in my relationships and even in my marriage you know these expectations of like what it means to be a man you know Um, and I feel challenged by that too because I, I think we all take part in the patriarchy Um, and where do we, um, have double standards for one another? And I just think it takes tremendous willpower to be a man who's received a lot of power and privilege in this life and then, um, and make room for women. Like, I think what I really love are male allies that are like, um, girlfriend, I don't need to talk. Like you can talk or let's let Sandra talk or Clarissa keeps really quiet. Let's ask Clarissa if she wants to talk versus like, I have men in the psychedelic community that like will take up everyone's um, time for half an hour talking. And I don't think it's on their radar. Like, dude, if we tallied at the bottom of the screen, how much the men and women are talking, like you're talking way more than any of the women. Mm. Um, and so it's very refreshing to meet men that are like, not making women the enemy, but that are actually doing the work and going to the wound and saying, let's make space for men to meet individually with one another and not do this like one upping, like pee fest, like pee, like contest of who can, you know, be more masculine and tough because that's not serving any of us. Mm -hmm. And we're all coming to this life with our wounds and our issues. And I just really applaud that kind of work because I feel like, um, 
there's, there's leadership there. There's real leadership there on how to lead for both men and women, because a lot of women have been raised with very abusive men. Mm -hmm. And so they've made their voices very, very tiny. And so meeting a man like you or a man on that path means that they get to allow themselves to feel safe. And, and, and for some women, maybe that's the first time in their life that they're feeling safe. Right. Right. I have a, so my, my path is, you know, we all have our path, right? you know, I was a very toxic male for a long time. And, um, and I can honestly say that my, my spiritual path, it didn't start until I had kids, but once I had kids and I started that path and I have two daughters and, uh, my God, like I just, I, it's, it's so glaringly crazy, just right in your face about how, unequal this this place is and uh and i and i went to a i, I actually sat in i was lucky enough to sit in, in a feminist class at the university of washington for uh, three sessions and um the the teacher was beautiful and was was very very open to me sitting in i was just curious and uh and i learned so much in those three classes about feminism and about um you know like genital mutilation in other countries and things like that like i had it was completely off my radar i had no reason to know it Right, I had no reason to look for that knowledge, but there's there's so much out there that with the inequality and this like the abusiveness that we have towards the genders, even even now that we're coming with uh, we're now exploring other genders, you know, with the, the pronouns that we have, and now there now we're finding new ways to hate, you know, and it's like, let's get this plant medicine out there, let's let's find the empathy for everybody, you know, we talked about indigenous cultures earlier. I was, I was watching a, um, a documentary not too long ago about, I can't remember exactly what it was about, but it, the, the, the more or less premise was everybody has a place. You, you might have um, depression, right? But that has a place. You might be autistic. That has a place, right? You might have uh, multiple genders inside your body. That has a place. And so the, in the indigenous culture, I can't remember exactly. It was a, it was a native tribe of some sort, um, I think in California. I can't remember the exact one. But the, the, the gentleman talking, he recognizes both male and female, and he was embraced by his tribe when he finally came out, and they call him Two-Spirit, because and, and the, the purpose of the Two-Spirit is to teach proper gender neutrality to both male, female, and both. So beautiful. Right? Everybody has a purpose. It's yep. not like you were born broken and then we got to fix you. It's like, no, you're born perfect. We just got to, maybe you just don't fit the quote unquote mold that we've made, but that doesn't mean that you're, you don't have beautiful gifts and talents that can help everybody in this planet find something better about themselves. So it's interesting. The two spirit stuff really appeals to me because I feel like in a lot of ways, Native Americans were ahead of us in terms of understanding that, that concept without, uh, making a big deal out of it, you know, without having all this fuss about it, which is like. People come into this world as spirits and they come in and they have different ways of expressing gender and we can celebrate the rainbow and it doesn't have to be this, uh, we're so caught up in this culture of the black and the white, you mm -hmm. know, and the, the wrong and the right and the, just this, the duality always and I feel like sometimes we miss the gray, we miss the gray so much. Um, you know, Joe Rogan has two daughters mm. and I just like harass Joe Rogan on the daily to get on his show because yeah. I just, I love his show for a lot of different reasons but... Um, I struggle because the women that he features, he's a man, right. Who has so much power. I'm not even sure that he recognizes how much power he has in That's terms fair. of his audience. He has two daughters, right? And when his daughters look for role models, his show rarely shows any women, rarely features any women. Um, so I would love to be on his show as a feminist that is also a fan of mm. his show, but um, I also want there to be role models for women in the psychedelic movement that are not just the Kama Sutra goddess who's like, come to my workshop and we'll work on our yonis, you know? <laughs> that's not a role that I'm interested in, right? Right, right, right? And then I also don't want to be the earth mother that's there for everyone's um, sadnesses and healing men and, you know, doing all this work where you get to be the eternal mother and put your head on my breast and I'll, I'll you know, nurture you. Like, I'm not interested in that role either. So where are the Kali's, you know, where are the Joan of Arcs, right? Our Pele, the goddess from the volcano goddess from Hawaii, um, you know, 
I want to pour lava on everything. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm just joking. I, I won't pour lava on you. But what I'm saying is I thought it was very beautiful that you had these daughters and you're like, wait a second, the world has different expectations of these little girls oh, or these man. little girls don't have as many opportunities or people are like, go hug uncle Sam, little Sally. And Sally's like, I don't want to hold, I don't want to hit this man hands on my body. Are you kidding me? And they're mm-hmm. like, do it, do it. Be a nice little girl. Right. Like, where's your smile? Mm-hmm. Go say you love him. Go say you thank him. Like, I don't, why should I have to go love some man who's creepy? Like, yep. ew. So I would just imagine that Joe Rogan at some point might realize like, Hey, I've got a bunch of white dudes that I'm constantly interviewing and my daughters are seeing this. And why can't I have some cool, like Leo Russell on, you know what I mean? To mm-hmm. talk about the psychedelic movement, to talk about how cool it is to explore consciousness. And there's a moment where Joe Rogan interviews Paul Stamets and he like, Paul Stamets takes this huge amount of mushrooms. Well, I've taken a huge amount of mushrooms, right? But when Joe Rogan, like his mouth just falls open and you're like, wow, you're so deep, Paul Stamets. You're uh-huh. like, wow, you're just like so brave to go into this wild frontier, Paul Stamets. And it's like, well, I've been that brave, right? So I want Joe Rogan's mouth to fall open when he's sitting across from me and here he hears about about my psychedelic experience. Damn straight. But I want the little girls more than anything else. When I get defeated by my work in the movement, I, I think about those little girls that are out there that someday will want to lead in the psychedelic movement. Mm-hmm. And I want them to feel like they have a place. I don't want it to be as hard for them as it has been for me. Um, and so that's just an important thing to recognize is yeah. I may not be a role model for a boy. I might, but you know. But when I think about those little girls, I want them to imagine being able to grow up and they could be in the psychedelic politics. And it's not always like I'm going to be a Kama Sutra, you know, (laughs) yoga uh, queen um, at the Kama Sutra festival. And that'll be my role in the psychedelic movement. I want to feel like women can, little girls can grow up and and say, I want to be um, a psychedelic politician. Mm -hmm. Is that why you started the um, Strong Women in Psychedelics Politics? Well, with Sari, who leads Decriminalized Nature Oregon, I think I was just having a lot of conversations about being shut down in the movement and like feeling like it was kind of a, a bro fest. And these guys are nice and they are not meaning to do this. And sometimes like we're like the... Uh, we're like the professor that goes into the jungle and stomps all around and throws some coins down to the village children and, and gives some malaria pills. And we think we're doing a good job. We don't recognize that by tromping through this community, we've now like screwed up their eco biome, like, because we've, you know, brought in outside like, uh, particles and chemicals on our shoes. Mm. And we don't realize that by throwing those coins down, now people are fighting over those coins when we leave. Do you know what I mean? We don't realize our footprint. And so like a lot of these dudes, like, um, are men that like have been my friends and like things like that. And it's just hard to recognize like, wow, they don't realize they're being exclusionary or are cutting women out or not making space for women. They're like, well, they can come, they can push their way through. It's real easy. There aren't any here, but you know, it's real easy to get here. Um, and so I, and I think I, I talked with Sari quite a bit about feeling like when women are nags and just bitch all the time, they don't get a lot of support, like people tune out. There's like something in our culture that as soon as you hear women start to complain or get angry, there's something that like almost like we've been trained from a young age, like, oh, she's a bitch, like tune that out, right? (laughs) So if we could make it like fun or powerful Mm. or exciting, and so far we have 800 women in our group. Damn. Um, and, and what's lovely to see them supporting one another. Occasionally you'll have these women that come in that like clearly have been indoctrinated into the patriarchy and want to break other women's spirits or put them down or or just hate on them. And you kind of have to tell that sister, like, I'm going to mute you or you're not going to be in this group or, you know, you need to check yourself. But that's, um, it's powerful stuff to work with the divine feminine. It's also powerful to hold other women accountable Mm. because a lot of these women that are feminists, they get the idea that we don't get to call out toxic femininity. We don't get to call out women that are abusive to their sons, uh, abusive to their daughters, Mm. abusive to their friends, abusive to women at work. Right. Um, so uh, feminism, that's not what feminism means for me. I, you know, I, I appreciate that stance too, because I think that, you know, I've, I've definitely, um, had aggressive feminists talk to me and, uh, and I can feel the vehemity and I'm like, Whoa, okay. I, I get like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I try my hardest, but, but at the same time, like 
when does the softening happen? Yeah. When, when does the bridge start to get built? And, and you can look across the table and see somebody with kind eyes and be like, okay, so I, you're a man. I've had bad experiences with men, but I see a difference and I'm going to extend a hand. Right. And, and I know it's hard to do that because we've had so many centuries of this oppression. Um, but you know, I think that, you know, one of the things that I, that I've experienced a lot of is when people get called on their ignorance with aggression, they dig into that ignorance because they don't realize they're digging into it. They just want to feel safe. So if you have somebody that's sitting across from you that says something ignorant and you immediately attack them for that ignorance, that just, that adds to the problem, you know? So asking those leading questions, what did you mean by that? You know, what's going on there? You know, a lot of times we don't realize how ignorant we are until we're able to unpack the ignorant statement and realize like, oh shit, I'm the bad guy. I had no idea I was the bad guy yeah, this whole I'm time. Yeah, I'm the asshole. Yeah, I'm the fucking asshole. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Well, this is why I think humor is really where it's at. Because if you look at the plant medicine community, like, no one is laughing at themselves. Like, everyone is taking themselves very seriously, right? But a true shaman, a true um, hayoka, is going to be someone that can laugh their ass off at their own foolishness, their mm -hmm. own stupidity, their own ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. Their own clinging to whatever they thought they were, right? Yeah. And so what we need is more stand-up comedy within the plant medicine community. Right, yeah. And I think that that would resolve a lot of these issues. Yeah. There's, a, there's a guy I follow. Um, I love his podcast. His name's Aubrey Marcus. And uh, he does a lot with plant medicines and things like that. And he's got a uh, statement that he makes quite a bit that says, uh, you can tell the spiritual master by the sound of their laughter. Right. And I, I, it, it rings true. you know. And I find that very strongly on myself because when I started my spiritual journey, I got very serious about it and was very stoic. And I'm like, I'm fucking meditating. I just took my micro dose. I'm yep. going to, you know, and then, you know, I'm like going along. I'm like, man, I'm more rigid now than I was before. Exactly. Like what the fuck, man? And it's exactly. like, you know, how do you soften? How do you find that balance? Exactly. I have a friend who became a leader in the Santo Daime church that I became a member in. Um, and when he started off, he was an easygoing kind of guy. He was an easygoing kind of dude, you know? And now he's extremely rigid. Like mm. everything is in the Santo Daime like religious way, but it's so like by the book that there's no room for like, I don't know, just being a chill human being. And right. I think sometimes like these people that are like uh, devotees and zealous devotees of anything, when we become zealous devotees of anything, then I think we can lose ourselves and lose the, the essential meaning of, of what it's all about. Right. Right. And so you can just imagine this person who's been a student of like this great, like guru forever and doing it just like the way the master said in the book. And then he finally goes to meet the master and the master's like smoking a cigarette and like, I don't know, like maybe he's <laughs> masturbating on the side of a mountain and acting like a fool. And the guy's like, I don't get it. How can you be like this? And the master's like, yeah, like this is not all about taking life seriously. Seriously. Right. That's not what this is all about. Right. And if you thought that this is what that that was what this is all about, then you got it wrong. And so I think a lot of times we think spirituality is that it's this adherence to values, but sometimes values can become our own uh, prison. Yeah, definitely. You know, we're we're fucking human beings. You know, we got to be humans, and to be humans is experiencing the emotional spectrum. You know, as we experience the emotions, <laughs> they become information that we deal with that we that we have in but if we don't handle our emotions and they become behaviors and then that becomes ingrained and that's harder to, to deal with well what's so interesting is in the political spectrum as far as plant medicine politics you're not seeing a lot of people that are doing necessarily like their work like their mm. emotional work and their spiritual work like maybe they had some great experiences with mushrooms they really think that it should be out there they're going to fight their hardest for it but they're not necessarily like you just talked about emotions they're not necessarily going into that that ush, gushy place of let's let's all talk, sit down and have a talking circle. Do you right. know what I mean? They're on that Zoom call, maybe afraid of COVID, never having left their apartment for the last year. Right. Do you know what I mean? Or two yeah. years. Totally. And so that just because someone is in the plant medicine community does not mean that they are automatically in a healthy place. Definitely. And I think that that's something for us to remain uh, holding folks accountable for because not just as a therapist, but anyone who's in the healing community, you know, not working with your emotions, not being aware of how your emotions may be leading you, not being aware of your own shit. Mm -hmm. That it's almost like we need a coven of witches, you know, um, and warlocks or whatever, you know, the male equivalent of witches is, but to really govern like people's capacity to handle these medicines, which are like touching God, if you're going to be a steward for these medicines, but to do so in responsible ways, like, are you working on your own shit? Have right. you gone in to check in with Clara, the head witch? Cause she wants to give you some feedback about your, 
taking yourself so seriously or being bossy with other people or whatever. Right. And so I'm just concerned that, um, that people lose track of, uh, maybe they did the medicine, but then they went and, um, did all this work, but they lost track of what the medicine would really want them to be doing. And these medicines have their own spirits. Yeah. They are communicating with us. They are like deities for some people. Mm -hmm. They're really consciousness. <clears throat> and so I think that that's a hard pill to swallow for the cannabis uh, entrepreneur, because this is something cannabis doesn't necessarily talk to you in the same way. Right. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole nother level of connectiveness with with plant medicines outside of cannabis, and uh, and it's yeah you know I, I would imagine getting deeper into this now world and this it becoming capitalistic in a way, um, we have to be really cautious about who's coming in and what kind of venture capitalists that have what kind of bank roles and what their intuition or their 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 meanings are behind this stuff. We probably be very very cautious about that stuff. Um, do you have, uh, do, do you think that, cause I know in Colorado, Colorado psilocybin, you can buy at a, a store more or less like you can at the weed shops here, I think. Cause I think it's been legalized to the point in Colorado where you can go to the stores and buy it. Do you think that'll ever happen in a place like here in Washington to where it's going to be readily available like that? Sure. I think it's all just slowly, slowly, just like cannabis, just slow little yeah. this and that until it's. Um, until it's available like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I know folks on the, on, on, who are pretty open about selling it now, mm -hmm. um, but that's different. Um, so for our effort, for the ADAPT effort, uh, uh, prescribers, so that would be a doctor, mm -hmm. a nurse, a naturopath would have the capacity to prescribe, right? Um, sub-threshold doses for home use. So that means that if, similar to uh, medical cannabis, okay. you know how Washington State first got medical cannabis and then we had cannabis for like the average uh, adult? Mm -hmm. So it'd be very similar okay. in, that, in that you would be allowed to take a sub-threshold dose home. So a sub-threshold dose would be what's, you know, commonly called a microdose. Okay. And that isn't necessarily the same thing, but then you might see that change in like three years or something. Okay. Um, with the, um, yeah, microdosing, that's, that's a, that's a big one for me. And I've, I've mainly microdosed with psilocybin, uh, but I've, I've actually, uh, listened to a guy and he wrote a book I read, um, his name's Dr. Kirby surprise, but he, uh, microdoses on ayahuasca and, uh, he does it at night and he, uh, he mixes it more, the MAOI, the antidepressant heavy than the DMT heavy. And, um, and he says that like, it's just, it's incredibly beneficial for him. And he says actually, and it's his own personal experiment. Um, uh, but he, since he's an author, he travels, he does book things and stuff and, and he can't really take ayahuasca with him when he travels. And he says that when he has gone like more than a week or so without taking his microdose, his, he can actually tell his hair is getting grayer, his cells are degenerating, but when he starts it back up again, he basically looks 10 years younger, which is very like all these different, different benefits that we're going to start finding out about these different plant medicines and the different dosages that they have. And hell, even plant medicines we don't even know are out there yet. Right. right? What combinations are going to talk to the next ayahuascarian or right. shaman to say, hey, this root and this leaf this time, buddy. Right. There we go. You know? Right. No, I definitely worry because... Um big pharma makes so much money from people being sick or being depressed. Right. And if psilocybin is more effective than general antidepressant use, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You might lose a huge amount of revenue. Right. Um, and so I think to some degree it's disheartening to think about there's a war against plant medicine. Right. Um, so as much as people like want these things to be available, some folks really don't want people healing. Right. Yeah. And especially, I mean, I think Ibogaine is one of the biggest examples of yep. that. You know, there's what, 50% success rate with uh, yep. taking uh, uh, people off of opiates. Yeah. Yep. And I think the best therapy we have in the States is like 5%, right. 7%. Right. You know, and this is 55%. Right. No, it's heartbreaking and it's stupid and it's moronic and it makes no sense. Yeah. Um, except that as a chemical dependency provider, when I went to the national, like, 
uh, chemical dependency provider conference in Florida that had most of the um, chemical dependency providers for the United States. Like, so this huge, huge gathering, mm-hmm. there was like a ketamine doctor there that, mm-hmm. that told me like he can't even mention psilocybin because of the rigidity around plant medicines in that community, right? Yeah. And you have to wonder why. Like all these people are banging their heads against a wall. All these families are brokenhearted over lost loved ones, right? Who are destroying their lives, who are dead, who are committing suicide with drugs, right? and we have a method for getting them off and no one's talking about it this is insanity yeah definitely and that, that's another point that i that i was really introduced to recently that i it just didn't didn't cross my mind but healing is a very like it's a very you have to really be set up to find healing right it financially stable emotionally stable like all these things that that like that it's almost a luxury. It is to a find luxury. Healing, it is. Know? I really appreciate you mentioning that because yeah. I had a friend who was in and out of the mental hospitals, and last time I knew she was in the state mental hospital, so God knows where she is now. Yeah. But um, I feel like she was just really done a disservice by all these institutions. But she was also poor as fuck, right? right? Yeah. And so it didn't help if I said to her, "Hey, you know, let's say her name's Mary. Hey, Mary, if you would like go to Brazil and go see this shaman, or go to Peru and see this shaman, or go to this ketamine clinic where it's eight hundred dollars." for every IV session that you do with the ketamine, um, or take the time to have a stable home, which is so hard for her, and then have the ability to just take time off from like any responsibilities and then heal yourself and all the brain damage you've caused with all these psychopharmaceuticals and all the other trauma you've had. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just so entitled of me not to observe, like that's not this chica's life. This chica does not have the opportunity to do that healing. Healing is not only a political act, right? It's also an economic act. Mm Yeah, most definitely. And it, and it's, it, it needs, everybody needs it. Right. Like we all need that healing. Right. Um, is that, you know, is that something that's being like talked about in the, the psychedelic community right now with the programs that you have? Is that, so I'm working on trying to do a pack. It won't be this year for this fall, but it would probably be for next year. So 2023, but specifically looking right now in the state of Washington, there's something called Ricky's law and there's something called civil commitment. Okay. So right now it costs like taxpayers. I don't know, like, like bajillions of dollars, like so much money because they're building like right up the street. You've got Fairfax, right? So that's a for-profit mental hospital. Mm -hmm. And the Seattle Times did kind of like an undercover reporting story on the fact that they will hold people and they will like manipulate and dominate and intimidate people into staying there and scare them into staying there and all kinds of things. And so it's an endless cycle for a lot of these folks. So what happens is people complain about the homeless in their community, and we have a huge preponderance of mentally ill in our community. And I know that they live all over the city, but um, what happens is I think they want to scoop them up and get them into a system, in theory, to get them help or maybe to make the city look prettier, who knows. They get them into the mental hospital or the chemical dependency through the forced Ricky's law, which means that if you have a problem with chemical dependency, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, I can call and get your ass scooped up and have you locked away, do a forced 12-step program on you, and you're going to be required to do like 12-step groups or um, take pharmaceuticals that you don't want to take. These are all things potentially that are against your will, right? So what I would like to work on is an alternative pathway where we have a holistic um, center where people can go to do herbal medicine or to do uh, psilocybin if they are not psychotic or to do sound therapy or Reiki or acupuncture, all the things that we like basically give all these rich entitled people. Right. Um, but that we would allow them because we're putting so much money into a broken system that's not working. Why don't we do the same thing but that would be state money that would be county money right but we're going to be putting money towards something that might work and will it work hopefully but it can't fail any more than it's already failing right exactly yeah i you know there's there's so much that um that needs to happen with that that community and just the 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 embracement of i have a friend that actually works at um, all three of the fairfax hospitals and uh and she just can't stand it i mean some are quote unquote better than others um, but that, that forced entry, that forced staying is she's witnessed a few times and it's jarring. It's very, very jarring. Yeah, also the totally. secondary trauma, because I, I've done that work to see people who are forced like animals and treated like animals all for, this is a profit making, like, like you can go and look on the stock exchange and find the companies that own that, that are trading on human lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, 
it's bizarre. <sighs> That's a fucking it's bizarre. Awesome way to put it's that. the most anti humane like way of uh, running a civilization. Right. Yeah. When we can stop being for profit military, for profit medical, then yeah. we're gonna start making some moves. But until we get there, there's boards of investors. There's there's all these things. Well, that, I mean, like, it's bizarre to me shit. that Democrats allow Democratic leaders to come into office and that we don't have um, free medicine in this country like any other civilized nation. And it's just heartbreaking to me because I feel like Democrats have just like died. They've just given up on like a central premise of a lot of Democratic, you know, theory or thought is that there's centralized medicine that allows us to not go into debt when we become sick in this society where there are carcinogens and so forth, which as we know are ca causing things like um, Parkinson's and things like that more and more. We know that, we've, that we are kind of reaping the environmental woes in our bodies mm. for what we've done to this planet. Yeah. So it's just heartbreaking to me because I feel like the political system is so broken. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. You know, I, I do have a lot of faith in, uh, you know, I think maybe the generation before us might have said this about our generation, but I do have a lot of faith in the generations coming up right now. That's beautiful. They, they seem like they have a little bit more awareness of what's going on. You know, I talked about my daughters earlier um, and not just them, but, you know, kids that I, that I meet and I say kids, I say maybe under the age of 18 and even some people in their 20s now. They're, they just seem to have a little bit more of awareness. And, you know, I, I love the idea of reincarnation. You know, we, we reincarnate in different parts of life and different genders, different experiences. Yep. And as these kids are coming back into this new life, I feel like they're being gifted a little bit of a remembrance of the previous of saying, hey, shit's getting really kind of sideways. I'm going to give you this little bit of knowledge just so you're a little bit more adjusted to where we would like the world to be go make me proud. Yeah. You know, and I, and I do feel like there's an awareness of this generation coming up that I didn't have. I definitely didn't have. So we're in the Pluto returns for the United States for the next two years, which is the oh. same period that we were in for the American revolution. Ooh. So it may be these young people that you're talking about that say, you know what, we're tired of voting for stuff that never happens because our votes don't get counted or our votes don't matter or you kill our votes or whatever. Yeah. Um, we're going to just take it to the streets, man. Yep. <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> Sometimes you got to blow it up to rebuild it. Well, it might just be amazing to see what, what happens like with plant medicine consciousness. You know what I mean? Because like a sit-in on an astronomical level, do you know what I mean? Is that, I mean, if you think about the plant medicines were available when you saw these big movements, the mm. civil rights movement, the, the, um, the anti-war movement for the Vietnam anti-war movement and the Woodstock, you know, generation. And so I think that there can be a lot of that good energy brought back, which yeah. is how do we love one another? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think that we can do a lot with, with being um, positive and showing kindness. And, and ex if we understand that there is so much pain and cruelty in the world because people are hurt, right? And that people are hurt. And you said yourself, people dig into their ignorance because they feel attacked right. and they feel like wounded and that shuts down their listening. But if we, if you think about the seventies, it would be like, man, I've got some, you know, great information for you. I just need you to stay open, man. Mm -hmm. And like, where did we go with that? We started dismissing those people. Like those people were fools, but those people weren't fools. Yeah. Well, maybe now that the, uh, you know, the psychedelic movement's coming back, yep. you know, we can start to look at those folks again. Or and the see medicine that... works through people. Like yeah. the medicine reaches through us. Like if you really want to follow McKenna's theory, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, some of that stuff is kind of almost like an alien species that has come down and is going to work their magic through us. Like, like we are the hand and they pick us up and they're like operating us. Like we're just this floppy, like robot hand on uh. the ground. And, we're, and they're like, Oh, this is, we can operate this. Yeah. They're up there with their marionette strings. Right. Just marionette strings, yeah, man. Totally. <laughs> and the thing is so far, it doesn't seem like they want anything bad. They just want like a, a world of happiness and creativity and imagination and appreciating this beautiful planet that we've been blessed to, to reside on until we leave our meat package. Like how, how bad is that? You know what? I love that. I love that. I have the, you know, I used to hate this meat suit and I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll rock this meat suit till I'm done with it, you know, but you rock know, it. That's rock, a really, you, know. you should have a t-shirt that says that uh, <laughs> I'm going to rock this meat, meat suit till I'm done with it. Have some fun in it. Well, that's another yeah. thing that bothers me is I used to work in the Olympia co-op and I would see all these people come in that presumably care about health. Right. Mm -hmm. But they'd be so afraid to touch someone else because of germs. Right. Yeah. And so afraid to like, 
I don't know, smile or goof off or farts or just, you know, be human. Be human and they yeah. would just seem so uptight. And I just kind of imagine like as much wheat germ as you're eating, like you seem like a miserable fuck, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I would, I mean, then you see people who eat like Coke and soda and McDonald's and they're happy and laughing and jovial. And maybe they got rolls of fat, but like that fucker's going to live a long time potentially because they're a joyful. Right. Then that's and, and so let's not forget that joy matters. Yes, yes. It's not just the yeah. It's not just the knowledge that you no, hold. No, it's not it's just the, the flax seeds, man. Yeah, right. It's not just the flax seeds. <laughs> I'm on a strict chia seed diet. No, I'm just so tired of these people that are like, I can't eat gluten. I can't eat this. No GMO, and you know, it's just a lot of work. It is. It is. It's exhausting. <laughs> Well, what's uh, what's next for you in the the Antheo programs, the, the Adapt Washington? What are you guys doing next? Um, I'd like to raise enough money for a building in downtown Seattle for Antheo Society and hire a full time person um, to do outreach and education mm. with the public. Okay. Um, so that's what I would like to do with Antheo Society, um, and also start some charter. Um, uh, kind of points for Antheo in Oregon and Hawaii with, with two folks that I'm working with now. Um, and then explore more with the podcast for strong women in psychedelic politics, um, yeah. which means interviewing different women in the community. One of whom is an astrologer, a really interesting woman, um, just because we've kind of always deemed astrologers as being kind of woo woo and to just try to acknowledge like, why, why are we hating on astrologers? This woman is like fantastic. So, oh, yeah. It just really interesting platform there. Um, and then as far as Adapt, um, we're going to try to do a press conference soon here um, just to kind of launch it on a national um, level to let folks know that we're um, collecting signatures and we're here and we're large. Hell yeah. yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. Is there, uh, is there anything that you want to put out there that, that listeners could help sure, out with? Sure, sure. Go to adapt-wa.org. So adapt-wa.org. And there's a volunteer portion if you want to fill out the volunteer um, information. Or if you want to download the signature sheet, you can download. It's going to be Initiative 1886. Um, and go ahead and, and get your homies to um, sign the signature sheet for, uh, for the ballot effort and send that in. Beautiful. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here and, and sharing your journey, sharing your knowledge. I, I love this conversation. And I think that I'm so happy to be part of this era of the, the pushing forth of in mm -hmm. whatever capacity I can be and meeting more people that are higher up and, and more active in this is so beautiful. And just to, to, to hear your story and to know where you're coming from and what you're working on. If I can be any help at all, like, please let me know. Okay. I, will. Um, I love, love what you're doing and I, <laughs> I appreciate you. everything you do. Okay. Talk Thanks. to you soon, love. Thank you so much for spending time with Leo and I. It was so much depth to that conversation, uh, emotion to the conversation. It was just so beautiful, and I really, really appreciate Leo's time. Um, check the show notes out for any links, uh, how to help Leo in her journey with the ADAPT and the Antheo Society of Washington. And if we can do anything to help you out on your personal journey, please reach out. Uh, thank you so much for uh, listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, and obeisance and love to you all. We'll see you soon. <laughs>